Philippians chapter two, you know, this passage is really quite remarkable. It's a longer passage as we take time to walk through together, but hopefully you'll see why as we work our way through it. It is a long passage, but it really is just primarily about relationships and two relationships in particular that are highlighted. And it's a good reminder of how oriented toward people this life of faith is intended to be in every, in every, in every turn, in every season, and in every progress of our faith. Let me ask you something. When was the last time that you laughed without reservation? Maybe you even snorted a bit when you laughed. Um, when was the last time that you wept with energy and emotion? And, and when you think about those last times, the last time that you just left, laughed without reservation and the last time that you wept deeply, were you alone? Or did those activities happen in the context of other people? Now, in general, we're likely to be laughing with others, and it's more likely that if we're gonna be alone with one of those two activities, it might be when we weep. But even if we were alone when we wept, how many times is that laughter and that weeping is still connected to some relationship, someone you know? I'm not saying there's ever occasions where they're not, but by and large, the vast majority, even if we're weeping alone, we are weeping in the context of a relationship. This was such a wild and odd week for me. I lost a friend who should be sitting right there making faces at me like he did every single Sunday morning. I entered into both some of the stress, but also the deep joy of helping prep for my daughter's wedding. And then this morning, we got word that my great niece was born and mother and baby are all just fine. And it, it's such a spectrum of e emotional encounters. And, and as I processed this week and as I looked at this and saw what I think emerges here very subtly is, is the humanity of Paul and the reality of how significant other people are in our lives that there really is not a spiritual formation without other people. Whatever spiritual formation I might possess if I were all by myself in the desert simply is not the same as in when that fruit gets to be manifested in the context of relationship or when it can be challenged in the context of relationship. And, and in a book like Philippians, where we've talked about, as we've come through Colossians and Philippians, some pretty significant heavy-duty theological concepts. And in fact, even if you read some of the commentators in the studies, they'll note how different this section feels because there's been all this kind of intense theology, and now there's this long, this long almost paragraph about two men. But it speaks to the way theology is intended to be applied. It shouldn't be applied theoretically. It should not be the chat among people who have more degrees than Fahrenheit who are sitting over tea and scones and contemplating and pontificating. 
Theology is supposed to be enfleshed, like the very testimony of the incarnation. And when the theology gets enfleshed, it gets worked out and applied and, 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 and manifested in the context of our relationships. This is how faith and ministry moves forward. And it's important because one of our, our values as a church is the value of community because we recognize that everything in God's kingdom is intended to take place within the context of community. Even these letters in the New Testament that we all read as though they're like personal messages, with the exception of one, they are all intended to be read by a community, not simply by an individual. And so we see that here in this section. But what I want to do, we're going we're gonna to read through and we're going to concentrate our thoughts this morning on verses 19 through 30. But in order to do that, I've tagged on to the top, to, to the, before we read 19 through 30, is a reminder for us to read verses 3 and 4. Because you'll notice some of the words that are in verses 3 and 4 come up again in verses 19 through 30. And remember again, we're talking about one flow of thought, even though it's been several weeks since we've looked at Philippians chapter two, verse three, when they were reading the letter, it would have all come to them within the context of a moment. And it is therefore intended to all be connected. So what Paul says in verses three and four then gets illustrated through the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus in verses 19 through 30. And so then they become living examples or embodiments of the kind of humility-focused incarnational type ministry that the body of Christ is supposed to pursue taking their cue from their Lord Jesus. So let's, let's start with verses three and four and we'll go ahead and jump through and we'll just read this whole section together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Verse 19. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you as soon, uh, soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. I'm going to pause just a few moments in, as we walk through this to highlight a few things. And, and right here from the very beginning, and again, it's like even all this trying really hard to mostly set my emotions aside this morning because I think they'll be unhelpful. But, but in, in, in thinking through pessimistically what I might call the hypocrisy of my emotions, that's what I would have called them as a younger man. But now I realize contradiction isn't the same thing as, as hypocrisy. We can hold and experience two contradictory realities at the same time. And that doesn't cancel out the significance or the legitimacy of the two emotions on the opposite end of the spectrum. This is not hypocrisy and it's important that we understand the difference because although we want the spirit to make us authentic believers free from hypocrisy, we understand that life means, if I'm gonna be faithful to Jesus, it's gonna be in very light, joyful moments where love for Jesus is very easy and it's also gonna be in dark, despairing moments when love for Jesus almost feels like play acting to me. But this is not hypocrisy. This is the reality of being human. 
And as I thought about that with all the conflicting emotions that I encountered this week, when I read Paul say these words, I'm going to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. I was so encouraged because what I love about that phrase is that if you read it in context to the other kind of bold statements that Paul makes about his confidence in the Lord, his assurance in the power of prayer, and yet even though Paul who writes these powerful words about prayer, who tells us never be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, make your request known to God. And when you do, peace is gonna fill your heart. And by the way, I want you to rejoice. Nonetheless, what he says is, but prayer was really not enough. After prayer, I'm still anxiously awaiting news about you. That it's not just that I'm praying, is that I'm also praying and I'm sending an associate so that associate can be the means through which God answers my prayers of encouragement and you can be encouraged through my associate. But it also is even though I have confidence in the Lord that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the end, nonetheless, I'm still uneasy until I hear a report firsthand about how you were doing. Do you see what I'm saying here? Paul can at the same time pray with confidence that Jesus will complete the work and yet still as a human being be anxiously awaiting news from his associate to find out if in fact that's what's taking place in the life the Philippians. And I don't know about you, but that gives me great comfort because I am constantly walking the tightrope of expressing a persona full of faith. And then in the next minute, it's nonetheless having real human concerns that make it important that I understand that my emotions might need support other than just spiritual activity like prayer. Like I might need to pray and I might need the encouragement of a friend who's going to bring back good news. And that's what Paul says here. And it's not the only time he reveals something that he does it again at the end. So for I have no, so he says, uh, I want to send Timothy so I can be encouraged by news about you. And I'm just saying that the way Paul writes, you wouldn't think that he has a need for encouragement because he speaks so boldly of his faith and the encouragement he possesses. And yet nonetheless, he is also a human being that recognizes he also needs the, the encouragement that comes through Jesus as incarnated and embodied by another human being. And though both of these things are equally faithful. Verse 20, for I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. In other words, what he's saying in that sentence is, Timothy's important to me because he and I share a bond. We both deeply care about what happens to you, both myself and Timothy. Verse 21, all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Now note the contrast here in verses 21 and 22. There are those who do not seek the interests of Jesus Christ, and yet there are those who do in fact seek the interests of Jesus Christ. Timothy is one of those men. Verse 23, therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. 
I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. Which again is a very interesting idea because in chapter one, he's a little like, and again, he's, well, you'll see in the next sentence, this idea, I'm confident I'm going to come to you. But in chapter one, he was saying, I don't know, I may go on to be with the Lord. And then he kind of works himself through that process and says, but I think I'll stay on because that'll be good work from you. Again, what I'm saying is on the one hand, Paul has this idea that my time could be short and to to part and be with Christ would be far better. And yet at the same time, he would say, I imagine I'm going to have long-term ministry and I'm, I'm, I'm planning on seeing you soon. Um, where am I? Uh, verse 22. But you know his proven character because he has served in the gospel ministry like a son to a father. Verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Meaning, probably, as soon as I see the results of the trial. I, I may or may not be in a position where I can travel. Um, verse 24. I am confident, Lord, that I myself will come soon, but I considered it necessary. So now he switches. Went from Timothy. Now we're going to introduce and he's a, a different idea as he talks about Epaphroditus. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Now, what's interesting here is we're not told why he's distressed. It could be that he's so... I'm not sure I understand. Oh my goodness, how embarrassing. (laughs) Hush, Siri. I would take the watch off, but Sunday's the only day I hit my move rings, and so I really don't like to take it off. Uh, (laughs) That is absolutely true. Uh, So, uh, where was I? Uh, uh, Epaphroditus. Um, uh, Oh, he was, you were distressed he was sick. Now, that could mean I care about them, I don't want them to worry about me. But it is interesting Subtly to watch what's going on here in this letter, again, a profound theology, and yet seems to acknowledge the backdrop of conflict. And even in this bit about Epaphroditus, something very strange we're about to read, and you'll see it. Number one, he's from Philippi. They obviously entrusted him with a significant sum of money that he was then given, and his, the intention was he was supposed to take it to Paul. Because as you said, this, as we said before, the state did not take care of prisoners. That happened from, if you, if you were able to eat and get a change of clothing and all that sort of stuff, that happened because of your support of your family and community outside of the prison. So he, he sent with this significant sum, but then he didn't come back. And he didn't come back, and he didn't come back. And then we find out from Paul that it's because along the way he got so sick that he nearly died. But then here's what's interesting. The last bit of this paragraph, Paul seems to be writing commendation and support for Epaphroditus. So it's really interesting what may may be going on here. His distress may have been, I don't want you to worry, or it may have been, Paul, dude, they're going to be coming after me. They're going to think that I just skipped time with all this money. And so we got to get word to them back to know that you've got the money. And so, so my point in just pointing that out is the human conflict and drama that is taking place in the context of all of this rich theology that we then study and try to apply to our own lives. 
Um, says verse 26, he's been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. That seems pretty hypocritical for the guy that's just telling everybody, hey, whatever's going on, just be happy. Rejoice always. I say it again, rejoice in the Lord. And he talked about joy in the first paragraph. And yet he also admits, I am the apostle of joy and I am a man of sorrow. And sometimes that sorrow is so deep that if I had one more sorrow laid upon me, I think it would completely destroy me. And fortunately for me, God had mercy on me by preserving Epaphroditus. Do do you see what's, because we we get these weird phrases from bumper stickers and coffee cups. Like, you know, if you just, you and Jesus, you don't need anybody else. What Paul is saying in that moment is I need the miracle working God that I will rely on and I will trust regardless of my circumstance, but I could also really be sustained by the presence of a brother in Christ remaining with me. And for Paul, that is not a contradiction. This idea that either you love people too much and they make them an idol and you really need to make God more love, that is silly. That, that is absolute silliness. And part of the reason why, when you say, well, you gotta love people, but you gotta go God a little more, what have you done? You've put them in two separate categories. And the whole point of this miraculous message is, we are made in the image of God, every single human being who is breathing. They're doing that because God has breathed the spirit into their, our nostrils and he sustains us with his breath. And unfortunately for us, regardless of our religion or lifestyle choices, he still seems to be fine with sustaining people who have different beliefs and lifestyles than we do. And, 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 and the breath of God is there to sustain them. And so to love God means we have to, with equal passion, love people. The moment we downgrade it, we are, we are introducing a false narrative into the paradigm that God is revealing. And it's one that humans constantly do. But what Paul says here, I need my faith, I need my prayer, and I need my brother. And so he recognizes so much so that he interprets God sparing Epaphroditus as God uh, uh, displaying an act of mercy toward Paul himself. So he says here, uh, he's been, where is it? But I consider it necessary to send Epaphroditus, sorry, verse 25, my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my needs, since he has been longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again whenever you see him. Look at this. And I may be less. Paul, that's not very spiritual. You mean Jesus and you actually have to have a strategy to address your anxiety in order to be less anxious? I thought Jesus was enough. 
Do you see how powerful this, these little subtle revelations are? Paul is not modeling this idea of a stoic spirituality where we are not impacted by the normal course of events that all humans experience. And Paul recognized, yes, I believe in a miracle God. I just testified to the fact that God miraculously spared Epaphroditus both for his sake and for mine. And yet prayer alone is not enough to alleviate all my anxiety. In addition to that, I've got to do some things to follow up and pay attention to what my heart needs. And what it needs is I need him to get back to you so that you understand he's okay and that he actually delivered your gift of ministry. And I also need Timothy to go to you so he can come back and let me know how you all are doing. I need all of these things in order for my anxieties to be addressed not just the overtly spiritual activities. Does that make sense? It's prayer and strategy that alleviates his anxiety. Verse 29, therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. So, as we look at this, we see clearly, Paul, this, this, this little section is broken up in two parts. One is about Timothy. The other one is about Epaphroditus. Let's take a moment to just look and see the kinds of words and ideas that Paul uses to describe these two men. And what I am suggesting to you, that there are multiple motivations going on here. Paul's making, obviously, an explanation as to why Epaphroditus will be coming first and that why Timothy will still nonetheless be calling, coming out afterwards because when Epaphroditus gets to Philippi he's going to stay Timothy's job is to go learn come back and report to Paul so he, he is he's certainly explaining that you can see where he is using these paragraphs as kind of a, a, a apostolic commendation of both of these individuals telling the Philippians why they ought to honor those two particular individuals and and how they could honor them um and, uh, but he is also using these two men as living examples of what he was talking about in the first part of chapter two. These are men who have learned how to live considering the interests of others over considering their own interests. And the reason why they're doing this is not because they're altruistic, not because it's a good strategy for how to win friends and influence people, but they're doing this directly because of their devotion to Jesus. And they want to follow his example, who, like God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself out, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And these men are embodying that principle. So Timothy, what he says is number one, is that Timothy is like-minded in his care for the interests of the Philippines. In other words, there may be a whole team of people, everyone might care about the Philippines, there's something, there's a bond between Paul and Timothy where they have that extra care and concern to the point that which Paul is willing to say, he's actually thinks just like me. The implication in the way Paul writes about Timothy is not only does he care for the interests of the Philippians, but he seeks the interests of Jesus. He seeks the interests of Jesus. It is such a powerful paradigm shift to open your eyes and see people whom you feel you're called to minister, share your faith, whatever it may be, and doing that 
for Jesus rather than with Jesus. Because what happens is people are either projects that I pursue as an act of obedience to God, or I have a paradigm shift that says, the way I show love to Jesus is by the way I show love to the suffering. That is radically different. There's unity there. There I'm not taking what I received to Jesus to go and give it to someone else. It's Jesus and I are going and we're ministering to someone else that has been formed in the image of God. And then our faith is gonna stretch us even further and go to Matthew 25 and say, and actually when you did that, you didn't just minister with Jesus, you ministered to Jesus when you stood with the broken. So he seeks the entrance of the Philippians, he seeks the entrance of Jesus, he had proven character. In other words, what that means is his lifestyle was equal to his faith, his profession of faith. He has learned from Paul as a son might be an apprentice to his father. Now Paul might, might be talking about the affection he feels for Timothy, uh, and it might be included, but primarily what he's talking about is that he is a fellow worker with me like a son is to a father. And within that context, fathers and sons working together, it was more about just the familial relationship with father and son. It meant that that son was willing to copy and mimic the dad so that he could learn to be an expert in the very things that the dad was an expert in. And Paul says, and the reason why I highlight it is in the first century, training was not primarily academic. It was through apprenticeship. I have a hunch that even though, as you all know, I think it's very important to distinguish what is the Spirit's instruction and what is bound by the context of a culture within Scripture. I don't think that this is just a cultural thing. I do think that this is the wisdom of the Spirit that says training doesn't happen by reading a book, answering a test, and getting a title. It happens when you attach yourself wiser than you, you watch what they do, and you're willing to submit to the process of doing what they do, even when you don't understand it until you get to the place that you do. So ministry training, we really have a challenging system put in place in, these, in this day and time. Because ministry training that we see in the scripture comes in the context of relationship, not primarily in the context of academics. And so that's what Paul is highlighting here. He has been my apprentice. He learned from Paul as a son might be an apprentice to his father. And then he says these two words that I think are really interesting. And it's up in verse 20, the way he puts these two lines together. He says that he, 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 he sought the interests of Jesus and he cared about the interests of the Philippians. To seek the interests of Jesus, interests of Jesus is to seek the interests of his people. That's how it get, gets fleshed out. We minister directly to Jesus when we minister to his body, the church. Some of you will worship Jesus this morning, today, because you gathered in church and this gifted worship team has spent hours both preparing and praying for us all. And I think, I, I mean, I am just honored to be part of the community and the communal expression of worship that we all enjoy together on Sunday mornings. But some of us are gonna have a chance to not just sing to Jesus, some of us are gonna pray with Jesus after the service. Some of us, some of us are gonna hold the door open for Jesus as he goes to his car. 
Some of us might be prompted, look across the room and say, I think Jesus might need someone to go to lunch with. And I'm going to see if he would like to go to lunch with me. You see how seamless this life of worship is supposed to be. There is no contradiction between this and this. It's all intended to flow in one harmonious rhythm. I worship the risen Christ as I contemplate the glory of, his, of, the, of the God who conquered death and awaits and builds a world for me that I can't comprehend. And I minister to my Lord by being kind to my wife this afternoon, by, by being present with a friend who wants to share. Now, not only am I singing from Jesus in this posture here, but I'm actually lending my hands to directly meet the needs of Jesus in his distressing disguise. When I'm like this, Jesus isn't disguised to me. When it comes in the context of an inconvenience of my life, that's when Jesus comes to me in his disguise. And it's very wise of us to learn to cultivate an intuition that we recognize it when he's here. It's like the, a massive spiritual formation game of Where's Waldo? Is that every day you should be able to think back on your day and go, where was Jesus? Oh, there he was. I'm so glad I took time for him. Or it might be like me, where I go, there he was, and I ignored you again. It makes, as the deer that I just seen, seem a little less powerful when I think about how I ignored you in the face of my brother or sister. But tomorrow is a new day. I go to bed in the death of this day, and like my faith reminds me constantly, I will arise in resurrected life in eight hours or less if it's me, but hopefully you're getting eight hours. And when I do, I'm gonna learn from this moment where I reminded myself where I neglected Jesus yesterday. And when I hit the bed, my pillow hits the, my head hits the pillow tomorrow night, I might have a different testimony to bear witness to. And so, and so all of this flows together. We minister directly to Jesus when we minister to his body, the church. The way the interest of Jesus gets pursued is when I pursue the interests of his people. The reason every Christian is a minister is because the way we express our devotion to Jesus and our love for God is by meeting the needs of those who are suffering physically, emotionally, spiritually, and or socially. In other words, you can follow the Christian ideology and not be a minister. And maybe we see a lot of evidence of that in the modern church. But you can't follow Jesus and not be a minister of the gospel. If you follow Jesus, and if you want to minister to him, then the Spirit has equipped you with gifts so that you may minister to his body. And, and that is how that will happen. So, flowing out of that, how does that happen? What I want us to see here in this example of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus is that equipping for ministry is primarily about practical learning, not merely academic learning. This is training and learning through watching and copying. 
that we see this over and over again, and this is the way Jesus trained his apostles. So the implications that I wanna challenge us with, it's great if we have a passion for organizing and administrating programmatic expressions of ministry. It's great that we have a passion for reading about issues and situations and even thinking about how are we called to stand for justice both for the individual as well as a prophetic stance against systemic injustice. I think all of that is all a necessary part of our training. It's all part of the passions that direct us in a life of building a world that reflects the kingdom of God more than it reflects the kingdom of the world. I'm on board with all of that. But what I would say is, until you've found someone that you can copy and mimic, you're probably robbing yourself of a significant relational source of ministry training that God has worked into the way his kingdom works. So if you don't have that, then you begin praying for that. Begin asking for it. Begin, God, open my eyes. It, it, is, it is remarkable. Once you start living an awake life, the way these spirit-empowered coincidences just start flooding in all around you. And all of a sudden, you will be introduced to teachers that you might not have first realized they are intended to be there in your life as your teacher. But they will be because this is the way the kingdom of God works. It works, and this is what Timothy had with Paul. He could watch and copy what Paul did because they had a heart for the same kind of ministry, which is why in the kingdom of God, ministry is done communally. Find the people who want to help the people that you want to help. And if you do, you will have discovered your tribe for this season of your life. And what's also great about friendships and relationships is that you don't have to cling to one particular tribe or relationship and say, this is my tribe or this is my friend for the rest of my life. No, you start to let go when you realize God has multiple significant people that are intended, some to be in your life, all of your days, but there are some beautiful relationships that we tend to belittle and we should not just because they're temporary. God will oftentimes do significant work in your heart through a relationship of someone that's only intended to be in your life for a brief season. And that is okay. This world is not our home. We are not looking for permanence. We are pilgrim people. We are traveling people. We are content. We are also people that serve a God who created seasons like spring and summer and fall and winter. And we recognize our tribe might ebb and flow throughout all of our lives, but we're always intended to be living in the context of a tribe or the context of community. And ministry is really powerful when you group together with the people that want to help the people that you want to help. Now you're bonded together with this mutual interest for serving a group of people, and that is how you experience joy in the kingdom of God. Then finally, Epaphroditus, look at the words he uses to explain his posture, his relationship with Epaphroditus. He calls him his brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. In other words, what you don't see embodied here is this sense of ego hierarchy in the way ministry moves forward in the kingdom of God. The apostle looks to the messenger and the deliverer and says, he's my brother, he's my coworker, he's my fellow soldier. 
What I do when I sit in prison as your apostle and write these profound letters that will change the course of history and particularly Western civilization, yeah, that's important. But you know what? It's no more important than my brother who sent me the, who gave me the money that you sent. Because if he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be around to write these letters that are gonna change the world. So, so there is no hierarchy of importance here. He is my fellow soldier, my fellow brother. We operate in minute. Now, there is a hierarchy of responsibility, and that's a separate talk that I can talk about later time. But when it comes to ministry teams and authority, the body of Christ is supposed to be flat with one head, and it's Jesus, not a person. And that's what we see modeled in the way Paul is affirming his fellow workers. Finally, he says, the sixth thing he says about him is that they made up what was lacking in the ministry of the Philippians. This is really interesting because even though they, they, they contributed this collection of money for Paul, Paul recognized the ministry is not over when you collect the money. Because unless someone gets it to where it's supposed to be, frankly, you only did half ministry. Which is, that's what he's saying. He said, you couldn't follow through with all of it because all of you couldn't get it to me. So you had to have Epaphroditus who he came and he completed what was lacking in your intention. Because what he says is this ministry took place in three movements. There was the need, then there was the donation, but then there was the delivery. And everybody had a different part to play in that process. And what Paul is simply affirming is that it's all ministry. The person that can't leave Philippi and take the long trek to where, where, where Paul is imprisoned, but might be able to make a con contribution. Whereas Epaphroditus could have never carried the sum of money on his own that he carried to Paul, even though he was delivered. But do you see how this is not competitive? I feel like that if that were today, there'd be a Facebook group for donators and a Facebook group for those who deliver and they would hate each other and that they would, they would mock each other and talk about why one is important over the other. Thank God they didn't have social media then because that's not what you see here. You see it as this holistic rhythm of everyone having very different parts to play, but as the whole, we move together to get it done. And all of this is an expression of the Spirit's ministry. Those who donated could not travel, but the one who traveled could not have donated the sum alone. Ministry, which is the meeting of need, happens practically and incarnationally. There is support and there is service. There is generosity and there is embodiment. And sometimes we might be able to participate with both of those movements, but more often than not, it requires a team of people where, those of, where we can disperse and organize in our various interests of gifting and passion, but then work together for the cause of ministry, which in this case didn't result in mass revival or mass conversions. In this case, the work of the kingdom of God was in the mobilization of an entire church to come to the aid of one person. And that's exactly what they did. And that too was good gospel work. So as we get ready to reflect, take communion and to respond, I wanna share with you a verse that I'm sure you've all read before. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. My friends, this is not just a theoretical observation. This is the kind of observation that keeps me up at night. This is the kind of observation that is on our lips when we pray as a leadership team. Because what this is communicating is something that I think that in general, the modern church has organized against. And it's so therefore, one of the things we need to repent of and move back to what the scripture calls us to model and to be. The church is not made up of ministers and clergy. That is not the way we are intended to be organized. And even to this day, clergy doesn't even mean exactly what it meant when it was first coined. In fact, today we could almost <laughs> categorize it as ministers and observers. In humility, seeking the wisdom of God, if we're not careful, we could also think about it as performers and those that are entertained. None of these are the model of the scripture. The church is not intended to be organized with ministers and clergy. The church is made up of ministers and those who are responsible to support them by equipping them for ministry. Someone could come through the back door, observe what's going on in the room right now, and say, this is the minister ministering to the congregation. That means I failed. And it would behoove you, if that's the way I continue to do things, to consider dismissing me. My hope and prayer is that people walk in and they look at what's going on and there's a paradigm that says, this is a gathering of the ministers and the servant that has been given the responsibility to be present to help equip them for their job. That is how the church is intended to be organized. Do I pretend like we are faithful to that every step of the way? No, I don't. My ego gets caught up in performance. I battle it every single week. Do you know what the most depressing, and when I say depressing, I don't mean bummed out. I mean like concentrate, put on my armor, and fight to save my soul. Depression, it happens from about 1 p.m. on Sunday afternoon until about 7 a.m. on Monday morning. That is the darkest time of the week because it is the time that I am most preoccupied with my own ego. What happened Sunday morning? Did I say things correctly? What did people think about that? How come I haven't got a text yet? They must be mad at me. I bet they hate me. I bet they're gonna fire me by Wednesday. I mean, these are the, and, and at this point, I just don't even try to work around it anymore. I'm just, I leave here, I go eat my chicken or my tacos, I go home, and I look up to the sky and I say, okay, is that all you got? Bring it on, we're, we're, we're in this for the next 12 hours, and I know. 
okay? And that might mean I need to take time to seek the Lord in prayer or to veg out on the office reruns. I mean, I don't know what all I'm gonna do in that process, but I know it's that, and you know what? I don't dread it anymore. Fine, because I would rather wrestle with that for that 12 hour period and come out Monday morning where I realize once again, this is not about me. I am content to serve as long as I am useful and I am open to the season when I may not be. And that is really in my heart by Monday morning, that's where I am. Why? Because I'm so clever? No, because the Holy Spirit has chosen to meet me in depression instead of laughter and joy, and that's okay. Sometimes the Holy Spirit meets me in my energy, and sometimes he just sits with me in my fatigue, and all of it's okay. But do you see how we all have to be conscious of this system we've set up? There are no heroes in this room. We are all ministers of the gospel. This is what minister simply means um, liturgos, liturgos. It's the word from which we get liturgy. It's a public servant, a minister. It means someone who, who um, well, this word is derived of two different words. One word that means belonging to the people and another word that means work. So what a minister simply is, is someone who works for the good of the community. And maybe that's the community of your church or it's the community of your county. But the moment you're willing to serve and work for the good of the community, you've been enlisted as a servant, as a minister of Jesus. Ministry is simply living for the interest of Jesus in the context of community. Ministry is expressing our love for God as service to people as we work for the good of the community. And finally, ministry is always relationally. So would you stand? And as the worship team comes forward, and we're gonna get ready to take common communion, we'll start at the back here on this side. The middle section will start right here and come forward. And this section will start on that outside end and come forward. You'll see the routine very quickly. But what I wanna ask you to do, that as you are standing and waiting for your time at the communion table, or as you're walking up to it, or as you take the elements back to your seat and wait for us all to take them together, would you consider these two prayers? Simply this, number one, show me who you are calling me to serve today. What people group am I being called to own their interest as the interests of Jesus and to respond accordingly? And secondly, would you show me my people with whom I should be serving in this season of my life? Show me my tribe. Who are the people that are supposed to go with me as I seek to bring healing to the broken?